0: Welcome to the Tuesday Theology Edition of the Scotts Hill Podcast. At Scotts Hill, one of our core values is studying God's word. So through this theology class, our goal is to equip our people with the right knowledge of God. Enjoy, and we hope that you grow in your knowledge of God and application of his word. The church has historically believed that Jesus Christ rose on the third day following his crucifixion and then ascended into heaven 40 days later It has pointed to the resurrection as this, God's seal of approval on the death of Christ as complete payment for humanity's sin and as a promise of the final bodily resurrection of all believers. And the church has underscored the importance of the ascension as a guarantee that Christ has received glory and honor and now rules with authority over the entire universe. The church has had to defend this conviction against many challenges ranging from the denials of Christ's actual death to charges that the disciples nearly hallucinated in believing Christ to be alive. While unique in its claim to a resurrection and ascension of its founder, the church has historically maintained that Christianity stands or collapses on the reality of these events. This subject, this that we're talking about, the resurrection and ascension, the church stands or collapses on the reality of these events. What we believe about the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ can either make or break Christianity as a whole. That's, that's, that is, it's the fulcrum of that. Um, there is a widespread agreement in the resurrection and ascension among Roman Catholics, Orthodox, and Protestants. So, where does your book start out? Um, New Testament Evidence. Uh, it gives, um, and and in this we have uh, some fill in the blanks. I might not hit them all, but I gave you a couple sheets of fill in the blanks. Um, I'm going to try to get to some of them. I don't have, like I said, I don't have them all. I'm going to skip the first one right there. Um, but uh, we see it in the four gospels: Matthew twenty-eight one through twenty, Mark 1 through 8 luke 24 one through eight, Luke twenty-four one through fifty-three, John twenty-one. Through 2125. If you have not been able to go through and read all of those, um, do it. I would say do it before you go on to chapter 17. Uh, it's really good. Uh, it's maybe 10 minutes, but you get to see um, how different but complementary uh, the gospel accounts are and the different things that they address uh, within that. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about them, but I'm not going to read them all. But I do want to read one, and I've printed it off for you. Matthew chapter 28, I think, is, uh, uh, if we were to pick one of the four, I think that's a good one, good one to pick. So let's read this together. You can read from your scripture or from uh, the page right there in front of you, Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb... So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this day as it comes um, to a close. Here in the next few hours, we thank you for uh, your grace over us that sustained us to this moment. Uh, we thank you for uh, the opportunity that we have to come together and to study your word to study the doctrines of our faith. Uh, pray, God, that you would be honored and glorified as we celebrate uh, the resurrection, as we talk about uh, your ascension, as we look to how this, um, what this means for us as believers and discuss this. As we look back on the past and what others have said and carried this truth and uh, those who have agreed and disagreed with it, Father, um, may you receive all the glory. Here and now, me pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I was trying to think through what angle to kind of uh, come at uh, today, tonight. Um, uh, not to just stand up here and reiterate. Uh, come on in. Come on in. You can, not just to stand up here and reiterate uh, what you've already read. Um, I think that's worth something we're going to do eventually, uh, but I wanted to take the first probably 25-30 minutes and uh, give a an historical look at uh, this doctrine, how this doctrine has uh, been represented throughout the history of the church. Um, and so uh, we're going to start right uh, there. We're going to start first in Scripture. Uh, so... You, I, what I would encourage you to do, if you're taking notes, uh, maybe write down some of the names of some of the people that I'm about to, to talk about, Any, anything. I'm going to go really fast, though, because I've got a lot, but I'm going to fly through it. But I just want to give you a historical perspective of, of how the church has defended um, this uh, understanding of Christ. Like we said, it's a very important doctrine for our faith. And it has been challenged, and I want to I wanna just uh, bring that back. And it's cool to me. I like church history. Uh, but I wanted to share that in, in, in with you. So uh, looking at Scripture, um, the reality is no human being witnessed the resurrection. Uh, the, the, the New Testament does not provide an eyewitness account. Instead, it focuses on these three things. The reality of Christ's death three days before, The discovery of the empty tomb on Easter morning and the appearances of the risen Christ uh, to his followers in Luke chapter 23, 24. Continuing Luke and Acts, uh, we read that they narrate Christ's ascension. Uh, In Acts, Peter addresses the importance of both the resurrection and the ascension as fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So, I want to take a second look at that prophecy. Psalm 16, 8 through 11, it says, "I have set the Lord always before me, because He is at my right hand; I shall not be shaken." Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Also in Psalm 110, we see prophecy when the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So we see Paul or Peter addressing this um, as a fulfillment uh, of Old Testament prophecy in Acts Uh, The rest of the New Testament discusses uh, their importance for doctrinal and ethical matters. So what does it mean for us? And so we see Peter linking it, uh, the resurrection to regeneration in 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, Side note. You're going to see some of this creep up. I mean, you're to, you've read about some of these things, so we're, going to, we're walking through this biblically, but you're going to see, we're going to be able to kind of talk about these things separately. So a lot of these scriptures are going to come up again. But Paul, Paul joins it in Romans chapter 4.25. He joins it with justification. He says, It will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification um, as Grudem or Perswell, um fun fact jeff perswell who wrote your thing was one of my pastors in louisville um and so i called him i was like hey we're doing this, this is awesome but he studied under grudem and kind of wrote or to, did, did y'all's book but uh he 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 makes an acknowledgement of that this is the only verse and we're going to talk about that later on um paul links the resurrection of believers from the dead with that of jesus christ in first corinthians 15 um uh, not going to read that whole thing, but that is the reference for how Paul links the resurrection. Um, Paul also has explained that because of God's powerful work of resurrection and ascension on behalf of His Son in Ephesians chapter 1, Jesus' disciples are also raised up with Him and seated with Him. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to talk about that later. So, let's look at some extra-biblical Accounts of the resurrection. Let's look at things extra biblical meaning outside of scripture um, and I want to take a, a road trip back um, to early Christian fathers theologians that um, Wrote on these things some of them uh, Walked with the apostles or disciples some of them were one or two generations from that they, they knew a guy who knew a guy Who walked with the Lord and or or, or did the ministry and then so uh, our first? Um, old guy is uh, Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp was born in uh, 69 AD. All right, this is the this is the era that we're we're in. He died in 156. Uh, he was the Christian bishop of Smyrna, who was eventually tortured and burned at the stake by the Roman emperor, and martyred for his belief in Christ. In his own letter to the Philippians, Polycarp urges Christians to believe in God who raised our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead and gave him, I think it's supposed to be glory, not flory, (laughs) and a throne at his right hand. Yes, I apologize if there's some spelling errors. I typed to those. And so we see that in his letter to the Philippians um, as early as probably um, 90 AD, he's writing this. Our our next old guy is uh, Flavius Josephus, uh, otherwise known as Josephus commonly. Um, uh, born in uh, 37 A.D. and died around 100 A.D. Uh, he, was the, he was a first-century Roman Jewish historian and military leader. Uh, Josephus' works are the chief source next to the Bible for the history and antiquity of ancient Palestine, and prov- he provides a significant and independent extra-biblical account of such figures as Pontius Pilate, Herod the Great, John the Baptist, James the Just, and Jesus of Nazareth. Here's what what Josephus writes. This is not Scripture. Josephus writes this. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared to them restored to life, for the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared." It's crazy. That's not scripture. He's an historian, and he's writing of, of Jesus being the Christ, risen on the third day. Around this same time, uh, heresies are starting to come out. Uh, one of the such heresies was called docetism. Uh, it's a rising heresy that denied the true humanity of Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and, it, and it denied it in a way that says he only appeared to be real human. So he was a, a supernatural being, but he wasn't flesh. He was so supernatural. He made himself to be an appearance of a human um, and can kind of morph himself to being a human. Um, But we know that not to be the case, because if that was the case, this whole thing falls apart for us who are human and are flesh. And so thus uh, the early Christians insisted on his physical resurrection and ascension. One of those um, who uh, was an apologetic against Docetism, Docetism was Ignatius of Antioch uh, Ignatius uh, was uh, an early forefather uh, one hundred and eight to one hundred and forty a d and on his way from Antioch to Rome to be martyred okay he, he knows that I, he has to do this for his people he knows uh, i mean this is a time period where they were not just being persecuted, but men were pursuing martyrdom because they wanted to speak against what the Romans were doing. And he was doing this. He knew what, was, what he was writing to. He writes these letters. And um, in one of his letters to the Sm- Smyrnaeans, uh, he affirms that Jesus Christ truly suffered just as He truly raised Himself. Not as certain unbelievers say that He suffered in appearance only. So he's, he's attacking docetism right there. Uh, he says, For I know and believe that he was in the flesh even after the resurrection. And when he came to Peter and those with him, he said to them, Take hold of me, handle me, and see that I am not a disembodied demon. And immediately they touched him and believed, being closely united with his flesh and blood. Another apologist was Tertullian, uh, 105 to 220 AD. Tertullian lived in Carthage, which was the Roman province of Africa, and he was an apologetist and early polemicist against uh, Docetism, but also Christian Gnosticism, which was already... It's crazy. We're, we're 200 years after, after these events, and already these heresies are coming up. Um, Tertullian uh, believed that the resurrection was firmly settled, as he writes. Uh, but in an imaginary dialogue, uh, Tertullian cites Paul's discussion in 1 Corinthians 15 um, as proof that believers will physically rise from the dead because of Christ's physical resurrection. I love his argument here. He says this. What is the point that Paul evidently works hard to make us believe throughout this passage? So he's talking about 1 Corinthians 15. What's Paul's point? The resurrection of the dead, you say, which some deny. Paul certainly wished it to be believed on the strength of the example that he cited, the Lord's resurrection. Certainly, you say. Well, now... Is an example borrowed from different circumstances or from similar ones? From similar ones, by all means, is your answer. Well, then how did Christ rise again? In the flesh or not? No doubt, since you were told that he died according to the Scriptures and that he was buried according to the Scriptures, he without, he without doubt rose in the flesh. Thus, you will also allow that it was in the flesh that Christ was raised from the dead. Cause the very same body that fell in death and which lay in the tomb also rose again. If therefore we are to rise again after the example of Christ, who rose in the flesh, we will certainly not rise according to that example unless we ourselves will also rise again, in the flesh. So he's he's directly attacking um, this Christ arose as an appearance of a human, but he wasn't really flesh um, and. Um, I don't know if anybody else caught it, but I love that we are, um, you know, sub 200 years that he's writing this um, into uh, Christian history. And he's quoting scripture as a defense of this. And that's so cool. He's already knowing Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And he's saying, you should know this. Why are we arguing this? So uh, uh, his defense into that. Bring up one of the bad guys, early deniers or critics. Um, uh, First one was a guy named Celsus. Uh, Celsus was an early opponent of Christianity who laughed at the audacity of the idea of a resurrection and attempted to discredit the belief um, by questioning its eyewitnesses. Um, I think it's, uh, it's great to look at that Matthew passage because in that Matthew passage we see, um, and it, uh, there's, there's evidence here that the chief priest met with the elders, devised a plan, um, and uh, to say that he what? He the disciples stole his body in the night, and then it says what uh, they believed it and uh and and the story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day so this this story of this is still um there. We don't actually have writings of celsus um but in a second next I'm going to talk about a guy named Origen who wrote um his his treatise called Against Celsus. So in that, that's where, that's where we find this guy. But Celsus writes this. He says, here's, here's his argument uh, of being against the resurrection. Who witnessed this? A hysterical woman, as you state, and someone else who was caught up in the same pattern of delusion. This person either dreamed it, owing to a peculiar state of mind, or he was under the influence of an overactive imagination and so concocted an appearance of Jesus according to his own wishes, This kind of wishful thinking has been verified in countless cases, or perhaps what is more probable, this person desired to impress others with this sign, and by such a lie wanted to create an opportunity for impostors like himself. According to Celsus, if Jesus desired... Here's another argument that he has. If Jesus desired to show that his power was really divine, he ought to have appeared to those who who had ill-treated him, and to the one who had condemned him, and to all men universally. So Celsus proposed that the alleged appearance of the risen Christ were nothing but dreams or the products of a wild imagination. He basically says if, if Christ is divine, he would have shown everybody, not just the people that he showed. I mean, kind of the same thing pre-resurrection on the cross. Didn't they, didn't they say, hey, if Christ is divine, he'd bring himself down from there, right? You have these skeptics that are saying, they, they're not understanding the humility of Christ, they're not understanding all these things. Um, um, and so Origen writes a letter against uh, Celsus. Origen was an early Christian scholar, uh, scholar and theologian wrote thousands of treatises uh, covering a wide range of uh, topics, uh, and he wrote against Celsus, noting simply, "Here's his here's his rebuttal." There was no obligation for Jesus to appear either to the judge who condemned him or to those who ill-treated him. He's God; he has no obligation to show himself to anyone, and so that's what his his rebuttal is to Celsus is. He doesn't have to do this to show that he is divine. I love that. He's just straight to the point. Um, Continuing on, we're kind of in the same time period. Uh, Justin Martyr, um, born in 100, uh, 165 A.D., an early Christian apologist and philosopher who was martyred. But this is not where we get the term martyrdom, just so you know. If, you, if somebody think that, some, some people do think that. Honestly, I thought that. So I'll explore it more at one point. Um, uh, I, I would love to go into what that means, but ask me afterwards if you're interested or, or where that the etymology of that word, um, but we don't have time. He doesn't say anything kind of um, um, groundbreaking, but what he does is show us that in, in his writings that this, this lie is still there. So he writes uh, uh, that Jews maintain that his disciples stole him by night from the tomb where he was laid when unfastened from the cross and now deceive men by asserting that he has risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. It's not that uh, martyr uh, agreed with this. It's just evidence that um, even in, uh, you know, About 120, 130 AD, um, this this lie that we read in Matthew is still is still um, active. So let's move forward. Uh, 347, 407. uh, John Chrysostom, um, Archbishop of Constantinople, uh, was an early uh, prolific early author, uh, Christian author, and um, um, kind of his rebuttal. I don't know why it took so long to rebuttal this argument. but I love his argument, and I'm hoping some of these, maybe for you, if you have thoughts against these things, or are some of these are apologetic, apologetic arguments. So if somebody's kind of might... The, these things are not... What I'm going to get to eventually is these things still exist. These arguments, the, the, they're still present in today. We're still going to see these, um, and, and it's probably more prevalent today than it was um, for the first 19 centuries. Um, and so uh, he comes back and he says... Um, and to uh, a statement like uh, the disciples stole him. He looks to the cloth, the linens. He looks at what the scriptures describe. And if he goes, he reads these words and how the scriptures describe the cloth and the linens. That is his argument. He says, what does it mean that the grave linens were struck on with the myrrh? For Peter saw these lying in the tomb. For if the disciples were interested in stealing, they would have not stolen the body naked. Not only because of dishonoring it, but also in order not to delay and lose time in stripping it, and not to give them who were interested an opportunity to awake and seize them, especially when it was myrrh, a drug that adheres tightly to the body and cleaves to the clothes. Thus, it was not easy to take the clothes off the body and would require much time. From this again, the tale of the theft is improbable. So... It's just an interesting—for me, it's so interesting to think about this time period in that these are the arguments that are taking place. This is pre-Nicaea. This is pre-Chalcedonian. Um, this is pre-language uh, 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 you know, of the Trinity. All these, all these doctrines haven't been worked out with. These, this is what these guys are arguing about. Um, you know, uh, oh, they stole them. Oh, no, yeah, look at the cloth. How, how, how would this—and so it's just cool to, to, to think back on, on that and to see the defenses on, on, on the resurrection. Uh, and the importance of that. So the church continues to press forward in um, the traditional faith. Uh, Cyprian Cyprian um, was the bishop of Carthage around 248, 249 AD. Uh, he was martyred under Emperor uh, Valerian. Uh, he affirmed the following, which this is, again, just this affirmation. This is the traditional view of the Christian church. On the third day, he freely rose again from the dead. He appeared to His disciples as He had been. He presented Himself for recognition by those who saw and associated with Him. Being evident by the nature of His bodily existence, He delayed for forty days so they might be instructed by Him in the precepts of life and might learn what they were to teach. Then in a cloud spread around Him, He was lifted up into heaven that as a conqueror He might bring to the Father, man man who He loved, whom He put on, and whom He shielded from death." And then we have, in the early church, we have the Nicene Creed. If you don't know what creeds are, I don't know if y'all have studied that or not yet in your book. Um, I know um, in the last chapter, in the big systematic, there's a a progression of how the Apostles' Creed came about based off off the atonement. So if you have the big systematic, there's talking about that. purpose of a creed is to provide a doctrinal statement of correct belief. Uh, The creeds of Christianity have been this. They've been drawn up um, so that at times of conflict um, about doctrine, I don't know. Oh, yeah, I spelled it right there. Uh, acceptance or rejection of a creed served to distinguish believers and heretics. It's used today, still today. I mean, there's a Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy that came out in the 80s where in a time, in time period in the American evangelical church where people were saying the Bible is error. You know, it's not inerrant. People got together and created a statement saying that. So we still practice that same thing, but these are key foundational. We had, um, go to the next one, um, there are actually two Nicene creeds. The first one is in 325 A.D. Uh, here's what it says. He suffered, and the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven. Um, uh, there was a lot, not necessarily, there were some things wrong, I think, um, in continuing on uh, in looking at this creed, not so much in this area of it, but in other areas of it. So they wrote more. And so they, oh, go. Did I do that? Okay, I thought I did that. Uh, uh, they, they came back, so the, the second Nicene Creed is called the Constantinople Nicene Creed uh, in 381. So I, I tried to bold what they added. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. So they added into that. So you see this creed that, that is a, a core foundation of our faith. And uh, very similar statements are found affirming the resurrection in the Apostles' Creed um, and, and the Athanasian Creed. So, and then finally, in, in the early church, okay, we're talking early church, 200-300 uh, AD. Uh, this is tail end of, of 300 going to 400. Uh, we see it kind of formed concretely in their worship services. We begin to see it take place in their liturgy. Anybody know what liturgy is? Okay, formulation of the service. Uh, we, uh, I use that word when I'm planning out how Sunday mornings look on, on, for you guys. Uh, we're open with a prayer. We're going to do two songs, or whatever. We're thinking through our liturgy and our scripture. Um, it came up in the calendar. And so Easter Sunday comes up in the church calendar, in the early church. We're talking 380, A.D., A.D., um, and then 40 days later, the church would preach on the Ascension. And so this is they, they, they say this is very important to us. We need to set aside a day every year no matter what. Now, hopefully they're preaching about that more throughout and preaching about these things. But we're going to talk about East, the resurrection. And we're going to talk about the Ascension on Sunday mornings. And that, that happened hundreds, hundreds of years ago. Um, so, let's push forward to the medieval church. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because I'm trying to fly. Um, uh, in, in lieu of the calendar, they add Good Friday in there. So, Good Friday becomes a part of the church calendar, um, uh, kind of affirming this need for um, talking about resurrection and, and making it a part of their church services. Uh, the one guy I want to look at here is Thomas Aquinas. Uh, Thomas was born in 1225, died in 1274. Um, he wrote uh, what is called Summa. Theologica, and it is a, um, uh, basically a set of uh, seminary textbooks um, that um, cover the full um, theological spectrum of the catholic church of that time so intentionally used for teaching um, priests and 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 those who led the church uh, back then i know catholic church whoa but there is uh again we've already stated we agree with the catholic church on what they say about the resurrection and the ascension and i think that's okay um, we we probably if you study the catholic church we would agree on a lot on what they say about the trinity um, there's not a lot that we disagree but then how they get it wrong, I don't know. How it, it divulges from there baffles me. But there are some things that even to this day we can study them and, and understand and know them. Um, he is a teacher, so he writes reasons. He gives five reasons for the necessity of the resurrection. These should be familiar to you in some way as you as you read um, this chapter. First reason he says uh, the principle of God lifting up the humble. He quote him, he says, Because Christ humbled himself even to the death of the cross. From love and obedience to God, it behooved him to be lifted up by God to a glorious resurrection. second reason he gives is uh, the Christian belief in Christ's Godhead or deity is confirmed by his rising again. So he he gives that great reason. We confirm he is God because he rose again from the dead. The third one is uh, there's a focus on the hope the resurrection gives to the believers. Because through seeing Christ, he says, who is our head, rise again. We hope that we likewise shall rise again. Fourth reason, he says, it encourages believers to holy living. We read that um, in our book. And and then justification of believers, which for uh, Aquinas, uh, signified progress in, in good works, um, but justification. Turning to the ascension, I think it's important here to note for him, he, he said... Um, the ascension is the cause of our salvation in two ways. First, on our part, and secondly, on His. On our part, uh, insofar as by the ascension, our souls are uplifted to Him because His ascension fosters, sorry, first, faith, secondly, hope, and thirdly, love. So that's, I think that's great to note, uh, he notes there. And then fourthly, our reverence for Him is thereby increased since we no longer deem him an earthly man, but the God of heaven. So that's, that's, that's on our part what that means for us in our salvation, how we can look to Christ. Now, on Christ's part, uh, because a cause of salvation, Aquinas presents three areas. He says, first, Christ's ascension prepared the way for the ascension of believers. Quote him, since Christ is our head, then what was bestowed on Christ is bestowed on us through him. Again, we read that in our book. We see that. Uh, the second is Christ's ascension initiated His ministry of prayer for all believers. So what Christ did now initiates prayer for us. Because as the high priest under the Old Testament entered the holy place to stand before God for the people, so also Christ entered heaven to make intercession for us. Because the very showing of Himself and the human nature which He took with Him to heaven is a pleading for us. And then the third point he gives is Christ's ascension paved the way for his endowments of spiritual gifts. When he was established in his heavenly seat as God and Lord, he sent down gifts upon humanity. Ephesians 4 says he ascended above all the heavens that he might fill all things. That is with his gifts as someone interprets the passage. So um, that's what he means by that. Moving quickly, Reformation, post-Reformation. These three guys um, are John Calvin, Martin Luther, and Ulrich Zwingli. They are probably your principal reformers. Everybody knows the Reformation, 1500s. You know, famous nailing the wall, the thesis on the on the door, and um, this shift in um, unattainable scripture for the common man. The shift in. Um, a theological understanding of communion with God, uh, the shift in um, basically the, the, the Protestant church coming up out of, out of the Catholic church. Um, these are, those are your heavy hitters uh, uh, for that, so if you want to study those guys. Um, basically, they all agreed on everything, with the exception of uh, uh, Zwingli and, and Luther kind of had one um, thing according to communion. Um, Transubstantiation. Anybody heard of transubstantiation? So this thought, this idea, uh, it's, again, this is a time period where this is coming out of Catholic tradition. Um, And the Catholics believe that you are drinking the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, So not a representation of the blood, but actual blood continuing to flow into the cup. And when you eat the bread, you're eating His body. Um, And so uh, they're struggling with this uh, still a little bit, um, with this understanding of, of the where is the presence, where is the body, and how does that fit within communion. So uh, I'm just going to give you their two views and maybe ask you where you might stand or where we might stand, but uh, uh, chew through this, just a little bit to chew through. Uh, Zwingli's belief in the resurrection and ascension demanded recognition that Christ's human body is located at the right hand of the Father. Therefore, it cannot be present during the celebration of the Lord's Supper. He argues this from the church's confession of faith. He says, They, the false teachers, are confronted by the articles of our Christian creed. He, Christ, ascended into heaven and sat at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From here He will come to judge the living and the dead. Therefore, they must either abandon the false doctrine of the presence of the essential body of Christ in this sacrament, or else they must at once renounce these three articles of faith which, God forbid, anyone ever dream of doing. While Luther agreed with Zwingli about the basic truth of the resurrection and ascension of Christ, the main difference over these doctrines came in their understanding of what does it mean for Christ sitting at the right hand of God. For Luther, the right hand does not refer to a place, but to the power of God. Therefore, it means that Christ, this is a tricky sentence, it means that Christ is present everywhere. The ascended Jesus Christ, he says, including his human nature, which in and of itself is localized in one space and not present in every space, is everywhere present in virtue of the union of the divine and human natures. Um, So that's kind of where he lands. He says this, he says, Where Christ is according to his divinity, he is there as a natural divine person, and he is also naturally and personally there. But if he is present naturally and personally wherever he is, then he must be man there too, since he is not two separate persons but a single person. Wherever this person is, it is the single individual person. And if you can say here is God, then you all m- must also say Christ the man is present too. And and simply he he just did that to say to, to kind of if you know if if you, I don't know if anyone grew up in the Lutheran church or whatever, I mean they lean towards that, but it, it's. He says at least one way how God could bring it about, that Christ is in heaven and his body in the Lord's Supper at the same time. Everybody tracking with me on where Luther kind of stands in that? Uh, yes. Yes, consubstantiation. Yeah. I mean, you kind of know where we lean on that. Uh, it's a representation, but he—he, he, you can just tell. I mean... Luther did He had some good things, but he's still struggling with these things traditional. I mean don't know if you don't know about Luther, he studied to be a priest and it was in his studies to be a, a Roman Catholic priest that he was like, "How are you reading the same thing that I'm reading and getting this you know and, and, and so um, but obviously still, still struggling with um, some things. All right, five minutes I'm want to spend on the modern period. John Calvin, I don't have anything to say about him other than he, he we, we, we like what he said, and he focused a lot of his um, discussion and, and writings on really how we can benefit, um, or we do benefit from the resurrection and the century. So if you want to read a, a guy that, that writes greatly into that. So the modern period where we are today really, I want to say, I want to be kind and say late 19th century, but it's really mid-20th century. Um, we, we begin to witness uh, the undoing of the church's historical consensus on the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Um, we, we, we've seen snippets here, but it, it just begins to explode as people begin to greatly deny this. Um, so I'm just going to give you some names, and it's okay if we laugh a little bit about kind of uh, their reasoning, uh, why they think it didn't happen. Uh, Herman Samuel Ramaris um, Allegedly finds a discrepancy between the good news preached by Jesus and what the disciples are proclaiming Okay, so he's he's, he's reading scripture. He's like disciples are saying this Jesus is saying this there's I, 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 I hints a discrepancy here And here's where he lands The disciples must have stolen the body and later announced the resurrection and ascension Don't know how he gets there from that discrepancy, but he's adamant that it didn't happen Carl uh, Bart and Carl Venturini. I'm sorry if your name's Carl, but Carl's not a, guy, a good guy here uh, they believe Jesus faked his own death and then proclaimed his resurrection. Um, these are all modern scholars, theologians. Uh, a guy named H.E.G. Paulus popularizes this theory. Uh, David Friedrich Strauss says it's all a myth. Um, and even, even more so, kind of dangerously, he says, you can morally learn from these things. These are good things to do. Let's learn from this. But it's not true. It's a myth. And so that's a dangerous dichotomy there in, in proclaiming this is uh, we can get stuff from this and it's good, but it's not true. Uh, Albert Schweitzer says that Jesus was the product of the imagination of his followers. Uh, Curse up Lake uh, goes to science. He, he tries to find a natural explanation from this. And here's his natural explanation. They went to the wrong tomb. <laughs> that's what he says. That's where he lands. He's like, well, I'm going to go to science to, to disprove the resurrection and sure enough uh he kind of leans back with our our guy these these women must have been crazy they don't know how to, they don't know directions right you know but peter he must have missed it as well um so they went to the wrong tomb it was empty uh, and then a guy named Hugh Schonfield writes a book called the Passover plot Jesus plotted with his followers to fake his death and deceive uh the world that's what he writes but um two books uh can you go to the last slide uh or not the last slide, but the, not this the next one. keep going keep going the, nope next one this one um two books I think that are really good uh for you if you want to read today of uh, responses to these- uh to these things modern books uh, first is Josh McDowell kind of an easier read, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Um, this guy, if you can tell, that's just the title, so you can kind of tell what kind of book it's going to be. Uh, but uh, William Craig says, The historical approach for the resurrection of Jesus during the deist controversy in assessing the New Testament evidence for the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, so, um, depends on how deep you want to go. But uh, Josh McDowell, a great book uh, written uh, within the past 30 years, I think, um, Evidence That Demands A verdict uh, something to follow up on that but I want to close this history lesson in a sense um, with this last statement uh, from William Craig Uh, so you can go back a couple slides but uh, he says this and then we'll move we'll move quickly through kind of what the book um, talks about he says this the Orthodox thinkers argue that both internal and external evidence confirms the authenticity of the gospel so that the reports we have of the resurrection stem from the apostles themselves or the apostolic circle. Therefore, if these accounts are not true, then their authors and the disciples were either co-deceivers or deceived. But the perspicuity of the events of the resurrection makes it impossible for the disciples to have been misled into thinking that Jesus had been raised from the tomb, when in fact He had not. It is equally futile to try to dismiss the apostles as base charlatans who had conspired together to invent the whole affair. Therefore, the accounts must be true. And Jesus did rise from the dead and appear to His disciples, leaving an empty grave behind Him. This fact alone allows us to account for the otherwise unexplainable phenomenon of the origin, spread, and steadfastness of primitive Christianity. Objections to the evidence for the resurrection can be refuted. In particular, the resurrection narratives can be shown to be complementary, not contradictory in nature. Therefore, the resurrection of Jesus is firmly established as historical fact. So that, that is a massive history lesson, and I just wanted to give you guys over and over again how, how none of this was Scripture. It was derived from Scripture, but it's historical um, look at and perspectives from writings of how um, Christians have held to this doctrine um all found as you see it's been found in scripture and so let's get there quickly i know we're running out of time um the nature of christ's resurrection uh and so we can follow along uh point number two Um, and if you have a question holler at me um if something comes up uh, we can discuss it we can look at it um I'm trying to remember what you ha- you all have to fill in. But um, sometimes Christ, we're just going to go through this. This is the book, and so uh, this is kind of what you read, but we're going to kind of dive into a little bit. I'm not going to hit all the scriptures, uh, but some parts of them. But um, uh, Grudem uh, acknowledges that uh, in the nature of Christ's resurrection, sometimes Christ was hard to recognize. And we find that, um, I'll skip 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, we're going to get there in a little bit, but uh, Luke chapter 24 Uh, uh, they were kept from recognizing him. Uh, Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. So uh, on the road to Emmaus, uh, we see that Jesus was hard to recognize because, guess what, he didn't want them to recognize him. Uh, There was a purpose and a reason for that. But then in John 20, um, uh, Mary Magdalene to the tomb. She turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. I mean, can you empathize with that, too? I mean, it's probably the last thing in her mind that he is walking around. So um, whether he kept her from seeing it or not, but she didn't realize it was him. Um, It's kind of like Carolyn was coming in today, and Eric Wilbers, our production guy, has had a beard down to here uh, uh, for years and years and years and decided to shave it. And she was talking to him, and she didn't know who he was. And he kept talking, and she just stopped and said, Eric, that's you, or whatever. I mean, it's just it's the last thing on our mind to think, you know, uh, he's, a, he's risen from the dead. You know, he's alive. So um, any, any questions about that, that, that part of it? We kind of know that. We kind of see that. Um, uh, another part of his nature is that um, he was other, uh, easily recognized, uh, though with awe and fear. And we see that in Matthew 28. Um, uh, we just read that. They clasped His feet and worshipped Him. Um, they worshipped Him, um, but some doubted. Um, uh, and in John 20, the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Um, and in twenty four, Luke 24, they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw what? A ghost. Um, so this, this awe, this fear, um, that took it up. Uh, we do get to um, the glorified body. Um, we do talk about, or, or Grudem does talk about that. Uh, he says this, he says, Jesus did not look exactly as he had before he died. For in addition to the initial amazement of the disciples as what they apparently thought could not happen, there was probably sufficient difference in his physical appearance for Jesus not to be immediately uh, recognized. The glorified um, body, uh, I can't remember, I think it says it in this, but um, if it's this section or not, but uh, there's a recognition too that he, um, he, it was a perfect body, it was glorified, but he still had scars and still had, uh, it, it is in this, uh, uh, does anybody remember the reasoning behind that? As in, in our minds, that wouldn't be perfect, right? We don't want to take our scars. We were talking about what, is, what body... We had a question earlier before most of y'all got here. Is like, what, what body are we going to get? <laughs> you know, What does that mean? What does that mean for us? Like, We don't want scar- our scars. We don't take those in there. In heaven. So what is the book... Do we remember what it said about? Right. Right. He is the, 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 the lamb who was slain, as he is, is said in, in Revelation. And so uh, we need to recognize that. And there's, there's an intentionality behind that. And so... I, I think it does say that. I just can't remember. I can't remember where that is. Um, so we have scripture reverence, uh, references of First um, uh, Corinthians 15. Anybody read that over the past week? First Corinthians chapter 15, the the count, the, the argument that Paul makes. So I wish we could go that route. In a second, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring that up again. I wish we could take it and read it. It's good. If I, if I had another hour, that's what we do. Um, but I don't. Um, but it, it, if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So uh, Paul is recognizing there is a natural um, body. Uh, C right there uh, demonstrated a physical body, and we see that throughout Scripture. Uh, Matthew 28, he had, they clasped his feet. Uh, uh, Luke chapter 24, um, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. Um, Luke 24, uh, he went in to stay with them. You uh, can't stay with somebody if you don't have a body. Uh, Luke 24 also, he took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. He took it, he gave it, and he broke it. It's hard to do that without a physical body. Um, John 20, I love this. I, I, I sometimes, I've, I've totally forgot about this, but uh, uh, he says, Woman, why are you crying? And She, she says, thinking he was the gardener. <laughs> right. <laughs> she thinks he's he's the gardener. Uh, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him. Uh, John 20. He showed them his hands and his side. Um, also, uh, put your finger here. See my hands. Stop doubting and believe. Uh, later, he invites them to come have breakfast. 20, Luke 24. Touch me and see. Um, and then Acts uh, 10. He uh, ate and drank with him. Um, uh, there's so you're you're jumping to acts, but but Peter's here saying, "Hey, we we ate and drank with this guy. Uh, he w- he was real. He we didn't like see the fluid go down his esophagus. Like it was, it was body supernatural attributes. Uh, this is this is a key here. The supernatural attributes are mentioned, but not emphasized. Mentioned, uh, not emphasized. In Luke 24." Uh, this this is kind of where the book kind of talks about there are there are things that happened here that um, are, are just happened here and doesn't mean that like we should really get into it. What is it? What does it mean that he um, just appeared or maybe walked through a door and those kinds of things people we can get like like. What was Phil's statement over throughout Revelation? Like, I always say don't major on the minors, basically. But, like, we can get so caught up in some of these things sometimes. Uh, So, mentioned but not emphasized. He disappeared from their sight. Uh, The doors were locked, and Jesus came and stood. Uh, The doors were locked, and Jesus came and stood. Um, In Acts 8, the Lord suddenly took Philip away. So, uh, he... uh, Here Grudem's using that scripture to say um, this happened in other areas, in other ways, when Philip, you know, it's kind of the same thing um, uh, that happened. Doctrinal considerations um, are um, an emphasis on lost perfection restored in resurrection bodies. Uh, The physical resurrection of Jesus and his eternal possession of a physical resurrection body give clear affirmation of the goodness of of the material creation that God originally made, uh, God says uh, He made it. It was very good. Second uh, Peter three. Uh, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. And then Romans eight, uh, the creation itself will be liberated. So this um, return to the garden, in a sense, this return to um, e- e- again don't know what that looks like. We don't know what exactly that's going to be for us. I, 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 it's hard to even imagine what that's going to look like for the earth, right? I, I try to—I do that sometimes. I'm just like—I'm very imaginative. But I, I do it almost in a challenge to God because I know whatever my imagination could most possibly create— I think it's going to even be better than that, right? And so I do that and try to get, get as far as my imagination will take me with looking at creation and, and just know and rest in the peace of even what my brain can fathom. It's probably going to be way better than that. Um, and so um, emphasis on lost perfection, restored in resurrection bodies. Um, both the Father and the Son participated and the resurrection, I really wanted to dive a little bit deeper into this um, section, but we, again, we don't have time. I, I, I was planning on not doing that because I would go heavy on this. Um, uh, but uh, this kind of gets into an understanding, a right understanding of the hypostatic union, uh, the, uh, the Trinity, how that works within this. Uh, uh, some people would evidently say um, Christ uh, did not raise himself up from the grave uh, and you have scripture that would would say the contrary but you have to look at it and say um, okay did the human of, of Christ raise himself up from the dead no but he's God so he did and so you have to look at uh, anthropomorphism of uh, uh, like how we can assign certain certain words to certain things the Bible can only talk about can only use words right we can only talk about one thing um, and but he is he is truly God, truly man, and so it's it's both in there. But overwhelmingly, I would say Scripture says the Father raised the Son, right? So the Father that's and an, his active uh, in um, raising the Son, the Son's participation. He is a recipient of that resurrection. Um, uh, do we believe that there is a third person missing in this? Do we believe that you know, is there evidence to say there's active Holy Spirit work in the resurrection, and maybe Grudem just doesn't emphasize it that much. Thoughts, because he just says the, the Father and the Son. He 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 spends some time on that and gives biblical uh, evidence for that. But the challenging thought is, why doesn't he say anything about the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit not active in that? The Holy Spirit may have come later, as it says in the Bible. Yes. But the Holy Spirit always existed. It always it always it was always there. Yeah, that's a good. That's good. That's a good, a good thought. I, I. think I would say the Holy Spirit, and I, maybe we get to it. Um, yes, I think next. Um, but by what power is He resurrected from? Right, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that the Father uses to resurrect the Son. So there is there is an active working in that. Because if that's not the case, then what does that mean for us? The Holy Spirit's not active in in the work of the resurrection, right? Christ is the first fruits of this. We're seeing this take place. If the Holy Spirit's not active in the resurrection, then what does that mean for us in regeneration? What does that mean for us in our resurrection, um, how the Holy Spirit works in that? Right. He can't. He's active. He's God. He can't. He cannot. It's not like they just work separately and said, Holy Spirit, you take a pause real quick. I'm going to do this thing and you do that. Yeah, he's he's a part of he's a part of that. First, this is where I wanted to die, but we're not going to. I have an article I can send you or I can and give to you um, that goes into a little bit more. But uh, first first Corinthians 1545, I believe, um, says Jesus became the life giving spirit. Right? It talks, it talks about that. It's a capital S. It's, the Greek is pneuma. It's the same word, So we see that. and he talks about how um, uh, in, in this moment, there is a shift. Uh, he calls it a climactic intimacy with, with how the Holy Spirit and Jesus and, and the Son, um, the Spirit of God and the Son, work together. So we see them working in the Old Testament, right? We see them actively working that pre-incarnate Christ still working, still doing His thing. Uh, Even in the Old Testament, you see sometimes Spirit being used. It's actually talking about the Spirit of Christ, okay? Then we come to uh, the the resurrection. We, turn, we come to these new things. The incarnation is new for humanity. The, re, the death of Christ is new for humanity. All these things are new for, for humanity in a timeline. You see this shift and now how um, uh, it's not that they're working differently. It's just a, a climactic intimacy. They work together more, and they work together to now regenerate everyone else because of this act this, this 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 is the true first fruits of of this of what takes place for us and they now work together in a way they haven't worked together before because why the cross never existed prior to this because the atonement never happened and so uh, they get to enact these things for humanity in a new fresh way and i love how the the language of the article that i was reading it just talks about he says climactic intimacy is this just, just now like they're like Let's go together in this, in this way. And so uh, I would push back on Grudem a little bit and say, hey, well, the Holy Spirit's part of this too. It's very, very key and very important um, in, in that. And it doesn't, going back to 1 Corinthians 15, when it says Jesus became the life-giving spirit, that word became does not mean Jesus transformed himself into the Holy Spirit. No, that would be a, a totally heretical. What it became means is um, they worked together. Um, they worked together in, in a union uh, um, that was like none other than it had been before. Uh, and, and, the, and the union is the same, but the working of that is, is now fresh and, fresh and new. So, chew on that a little bit. Um, doctrinal significance of the resurrection, Christ's resurrection, ensures our regeneration. Initial experience of the resurrection power is spiritual. It gives power over sin, power in ministry, but not complete until final resurrection body. And he used various scriptures talking about the new birth in 1 Peter chapter 3. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians talks about what it means to be with Christ. Um, you have been raised with Christ in Colossians 3. Uh, to know the power of His resurrection um, is Paul's plea. I want to know Christ, to know the power of His resurrection. Uh, continues in that uh, same thought of power. Um, Romans 6, we are therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life um, 1 Corinthians 15, if, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Uh, Christ's resurrection, any questions on that? Still chomping at it? Um, Christ's resurrection ensures our justification. When Christ was raised from the dead, it was God's Declaration of approval, we already talked about this uh, right right off the top, of Christ's work of redemption. By virtue of our union with Christ, it is also His declaration of approval of us. In this way, Christ's resurrection also gave final proof that He had earned our justification. And Paul just used one verse. I mean, there's just one verse in the Bible here. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So um, it, it, it seals that. Uh, the resurrection does as final proof. Uh, Christ's resurrection ensures that we will receive perfect resurrection bodies as well. Just as the first fruits indicate what the rest of the harvest will be like, so Jesus' resurrection is a sign of the harvest to come. I wanted to read First Corinthians fifteen, but we're we're not. We don't have time. Uh, but that's a great section right there. I don't know if I have it up there. I don't think I have it up there. Uh, any questions on first fruits and what that what that is, where that comes from, what that looks like? Um, a thought about first fruits... No, nope, we'll keep going. I won't go that far. Uh, ethical significance of the resurrection. Uh, I do want to ask uh, question number two. Uh, we just went through this, but give three reasons for the significance of Christ's resurrection. So, as you're thinking through this for you, what, what it was? We just went through the doctrinal significance, but three three reasons um, that is significant to us. Justification. He's the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn. There's no reason to call him the first if there's more. Uh, Romans one four is a really uh, interesting verse, and that's where he says, that declared him to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. The Greek says, resurrection of dead persons, plural. So I think that's something you can... Not, not necessarily see in the English, but it's referring to a plural resurrection. Of yeah. Dead person. So I think, too, it's important to look at within first fruits. I think it's important to look at um, uh, the event of the resurrection of us is not a, a separate event from what took place after after the cross three days later. It's the same event. It just takes place in two different times. So for, to be true first fruits, uh, uh, you know, in in... In that he, he kick started it. It's not a separate thing. We're going to experience the same thing. It's just, it's going to take a little while to get there. And so it's, it's, uh, it, the, the resurrection has already, for us, has already happened in that sense, um, uh, in, in Christ. So it's not, it's, I think, uh, uh, it's the same thing about eternity. I think a lot of people kind of if, I think about our language sometimes when we're praying. Like, I can't, can't wait to be in, uh, in eternity with you. You're in eternity with Christ now. Uh, we, and now, being believers, it's even greater and sweeter. Eternity is is existent in, in time. It's whether or not you believe in Christ is what that eternity looks like uh, for you today and for you after you die. Um, but just to, to think about what the resurrection means for us Um, Christ Christ it's the same event the two things are the same thing um, but he is the first and then what is what is to come for us is still yet to come it's not two two separate things we cannot separate those two Um, even though time separates them it's the same it is the same so ethical we got two reasons but I guess regeneration is another one all right, application, and then we'll, we'll get out of here. Application, ethical significance of, of the resurrection. Uh, application to our obedience to God in this life. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Earlier in that same chapter, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all people most to be pitied. Um, Focus on our future heavenly reward as our goal. Doesn't that get you through sometimes? (laughs) Right? Focusing on what we are going to receive Uh, In heaven, how do we know what we're going to receive in heaven because of what happened already? Um, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Obligation to stop yielding to sin in our lives. Romans 6 is key here. In the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. At the end of that, offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. Righteousness. Um, what implications does Christ's resurrection have for the state of Christians after they die before we move to Ascension what what implications do, does Christ's resurrection have for the state of Christians after they die we'll join him, well. We'll join him. what else right We've been made perfect, and whole. perfect and whole anybody else state of Christians think about it um, alright uh, to answer this question where did Christ go when he ascended is this an actual place Christ, we see in the book it, it, it is a place Um, He presented Himself to them and gave many convincing proofs. Uh, He was taken up into heaven. Taken up into heaven, Luke 24. Um, And then I love Acts Acts 1. The same way Jesus has been taken up from you into heaven, He will come back in the same way you have seen Him go into heaven. Um, Christ received glory and honor that had not been His before as the God-man. So uh, because of the ascension, and we read about this um, uh, I think why Thomas Aquinas, uh, one of his points was now we, uh, we, we know and we're, we're in all of him because he is Lord over all and, and he's Lord of heaven, right? And he's in heaven. He's Lord in heaven. And so, and he's also God. Uh, and so we see that as, uh, Jesus prays in John 17, uh, God glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world, uh, began, um, Uh, Peter at Pentecost, uh, in Acts chapter 2, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Paul writes, uh, and then in uh, Christ now, in Revelation 5, in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory. And praise Christ session Um, I was trying to think of a funny story but uh, when I'm at home at night after putting the kids down uh, I will go and sit down uh, and turn on the TV or grab something and uh, my wife will walk in the room and give me a horrible look uh, but why? Because my sitting down communicates something. What does it communicate? Done. I'm done, <laughs> right? It is finished. And she thinks otherwise, right? <laughs> and she looks around the room and says, "Nope, you are not done." I don't even have to say anything, uh, but she just questions, "What are you doing?" Uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, <laughs> I had that same similar thought and thinking through uh, the importance of him seating himself at the right hand of the Father, um, Christ's session. Uh, Psalm 110, sit at my right hand. We said that was the prophecy uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, Hebrews 1.3, uh, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Uh, Paul writes in Ephesians, 1 Peter, 1 Corinthians. you look those up yourself. Uh, uh, and, uh, but Grudem does mention that he's not always seated, Right? Uh, there are other examples in Acts. Uh, he said, "Look, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man what standing at the right hand of God." Um, so the seated was, uh, I think, to some degree Luther was right to some degree, it does exert a power. Um, we know that if you study, um, if you study Kings, and, and if you're sitting at the right hand of somebody, what, what that means. But it is a, he was physically seated, seated there, but he also stood. And then Revelation two. Um, He holds the seven stars in the right hand and walks among the seven uh, lampstands. And then finally, um, Christ's ascension has doctrinal significance for our lives. Since we are united with Christ in every aspect of His work of redemption, Christ is going up into heaven foreshadows our future ascension into heaven with Him. Uh, he writes, uh, Since we are united with Christ in every aspect of His work of redemption, Christ going up into heaven foreshadows our future ascension. I just read that. First um, Thessalonians, uh, So we will be with the Lord forever. Hebrews 12, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Um, in John fourteen twelve, 12, it, it, it denotes that Jesus' ascension gives us assurance that our final home will be in heaven with Him. Um, so I will come back and take you to be with me. Uh, Ephesians 2, uh, because of our union with Christ and His ascension, we are able to share now in part in Christ's authority over the universe, and we will later share in it more fully. In fact, that's a verse, I think. That's that last verse in, in our hymn that we sang, uh, right? Ours, the cross, the grave, the skies. Uh, we, we, we receive this. And Christ raised us up and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms. Um, so we get to take part in reigning with Him uh, in that. 1 Corinthians 6, 3. Uh, Sharing in Christ's authority over the universe will be made more fully our possession in the age to come. Uh, Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more are the things of this life? And so on and so on. So, sorry that was a lot we're about 17 minutes over um but hopefully to give you that historical perspective and to kind of recap through the book if you have any questions i'll stick around if not have a good night i'm here my door is open if i said anything that's wrong please come tell me i'm i'm open to that um and uh And if you have any other questions on these things uh, or want to chew through them more, that's what I'm here for. So I would be glad to do that. Thank you all. Read chapter 17 and 18. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) On to the next one. On to the next one. Thank you for listening. And we hope that this teaching has enriched your understanding of God. If you found this teaching to be helpful, share it with your friends and family on social media and tag us at Scotts Hill. Till next time.